Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Biotech Analyst at Cowan, and I'm super excited to be joined by Abby Selnicker and Nina Chelson in this episode, Women Leaders in Biotech Venture Capital, to discuss their outlook for company formation and financing in 2023, how biotech companies are adjusting to the new market realities, and their experiences as women leaders in biotech venture capital. Abby has over 30 years of experience in venture capital, senior R&D, and executive leadership roles as a partner at Third Rock Ventures. She focuses on the formation, development, and strategy of new companies. She was previously CEO of 11 Biotherapeutics and Talogen, and was a senior executive at Alexion, Millennium, and Novartis. Abby sits on multiple uh, boards. Nina Chelson invests in biotech and digital health companies that serves unmet therapeutics and access needs. She has a long career as a venture capitalist at InterWest Partners and Canaan Partners and has served on multiple boards. She's highly involved as an advocate for women entrepreneurs and investors and also serves as a mentor and board member of several non-for-profit boards. Abby and Nina, always great to see you and thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, I got to tell you, like I'm, you know, we do these a lot. I think this is going to be our 11th or 10th episode. And this one I'm particularly excited about, both because I've known you both for a long time. I have a huge amount of respect for both of you. We're obviously really trying to increasingly feature women who are really leaders in biotech. And you guys, you know, both of you immediately came to mind. Funny enough, I just saw both of you separately, literally the same week. Abby, I know you just moved offices, right, in Boston. How is the new, how's the new spot? And do you miss Newbury Street? That's a huge question. Yeah, we are ecstatic with our new offices in the Fenway. Uh, we, we wanted to sort of move to the Fenway so we had an opportunity to kind of catalyze some more biotech moving in that area and more of our companies able to move in. What we didn't realize is how all of us being on one floor and being together was going to completely change the energy. And, you know, Newbury Street was great. It was a moment in time. And uh, but anybody who visited our offices knew that it was sort of divided up across floors and across buildings, actually. So this is everybody all in one place. It's lovely. It's fantastic. The energy in the Fenway has been great. Just the ability to collaborate impromptu has been changed so much. So especially post-COVID, it's been amazing. We have to be honest. The real reason you're moving is because you guys all want to be closer to the Red Sox. That's at, we we look out our window. We can see the jumbotron. We can't we can't see the game. That's evidently a building policy that you you can't see the 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 infield. But uh, yeah, that's it. We're all big Red Sox fans, except for the Yankees fans. Yeah, <laughs> so. I, I have such a huge sweet spot for your old office because it was like so iconic. You know, it was a workout when you kind of move around from that's one right. floor to the next. It it also was a workout in the sense that the elevator often didn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you were constantly uh, trying to find a room with good temperature regulation when you were right. in, you know, 100-year-old offices uh, that were, were cobbled together. But it was a great place to be. It, so many amazing companies and amazing people were there. So we are, it's, it's, it's a little bit sad, but this new space has created an energy that I don't know that we've had before. So it's great. That's great. 
And uh, Nina, how is uh, the best dog in the world, uh, Fauci? How is he doing? Is he still getting compliments with the name or is everybody sort of over it? Uh, people are still very much amused for for uh, for Fauci's name, and and I think it places him a, a, in his age cohort because everyone knows that he's a pandemic uh, pandemic pup. Uh, he's he's living he's living his best life. He's spoiled rotten. Uh, he's a happy and lazy dog. He's more worried about his next liver treat than a vaccine misinformation or a grand jury investigation. So my Fauci is a uh, is uh, is really quite happy and. And I'm still, uh, you know, very proud that his uh, that he carries the name of of uh, someone that I think of as a as a national hero. Abby is a big Fauci fan, as we learned. Look at this right here. She's holding a go for it, Abby. This is my Fauci bobblehead that sits on my <laughs> desk and has been with me since the start of the pandemic. So I uh, share your uh, respect and uh, appreciation for Dr. Fauci's contributions, Nina. You should not have been so descriptive as to the location of the new offices because I'm gonna separate you from that Fauci bobblehead. I'm gonna go on Amazon and probably try to see if I can get That's one right. of those. <laughs> send we'll it, protect, send we'll it to protect both of you. <laughs> to you, Nina. All right, so let's talk a little bit. There's a lot to talk about in biotech. Uh, for those of you who are listening later on, we're in the mid-December 2022. The market has been choppy, to say the least. It's been a roller coaster uh, overall, and certainly in biotech. Biotech, frankly, bottomed out in June and has been massively outperforming. We're actually sort of in line or maybe even slightly better than some of the indices, depending what you're looking at. It certainly doesn't feel like that at all. You've both been uh, around for a while, seen many bull cycles and, and bear cycles. The bear cycles always come hot and heavy after a bull cycle. And obviously, you always have time to, or we usually don't have time to adjust. But this one definitely feels a little worse, just given how fast valuations dropped and you know just how quick this happened. Maybe, Abby, let me start with you. How does this impacting your outlook for a new company formation uh, and financing for, for next year? I would start off by saying our outlook is still relatively positive. You know, company creation is still something where you can have a lot of control over the kinds of companies you build and you're not just inheriting uh, a company to invest in, but really forming uh, a business plan for companies to maybe be more uh, responsive to this environment. And so we're really building companies where we have clear line of sight to clinical catalysts because we know that that's really what the um, investment you know, community is looking for. But we're also looking to bring our disrupt, you know, the disruptive technologies that we think are so value creating um, into the fold as well. So we're taking a little bit longer uh, to consider how we're going to build these companies that combine the disruptive technologies with line of sight to the clinic for game-changing therapies. It's really what we do and we're continuing to do it. I think that we're pressure testing more uh, as we're forming companies, how pharma and big biotech are looking, the you know strategies that we have for our companies, are they engaging? Do we see a pull there? Uh, we're certainly early, early socializing with um, you know equity investors to make sure that you know again we're putting together things that the the, the market's going to appreciate in the future, and we're building plans that really sort of combine both risk reduction and value creation in a timeline that you know coincides with where we think the the capital that we can raise is going to get us. So making some hard choices, uh, you know, maybe not doing certain projects that we would have done before but still really optimistic about what we're going to be able to do with company creation in, in, in you know, the next couple of years. Yeah. And I would just add to that. And, and, and I would acknowledge you around and 
again, you know, thanks so much for having us in this conversation, because I do think it's so important. And I think you were deliberate in choosing, you know, two people who have been in this business for, you know, a couple decades plus, so some perspective on multiple cycles. But we are both cup half fulls, you know, in funds that are pretty much 100% in the business of company formation, or at least seed and series A companies. And and to, to you know, maybe, you know, compliment Abby's comments a little bit, I, I do want to acknowledge that there are a lot of funds who were dipping their toes into this early stage company formation space that that for the moment are not. They're 100% wholesale out. And that's public funds and crossovers that we're, we're reaching into early stage company formation that are, that are not. And that should definitely leave some entrepreneurs out there, um, uh, you know, feeling a little bit anxious. But I would say for, you know, for us at, at Canon, we think about company formation um, uh, as you know, taking a, a few different ingre ingredients, right? There's the great science and technology. There's the formation capital. There's the talent to execute, uh, and then a business plan that meets the markets. And Abby touched on a bunch of those things. And then there's our internal bandwidth to help shape and support those ventures. And for us at Canon, we see absolutely no change in the science and technology momentum. In fact, it's better than it's ever been. The amount of venture fundraising for healthcare over the last three or four years is simply staggering. If we just think about 2019 through the first half of this year, some 70 billion was raised for venture for healthcare. So there's more than enough dry powder in venture funds, even if we discount the public and crossover folks. So what we're really focused on, like Abby was saying, is what kind of business plan will resonate with the more challenged follow-on you know, funding and the IPO markets when they do return, because for the moment they're not here uh, and, and will resonate with the exit markets. And then the other thing we're self-reflective about is given the time that we're spending on our existing portfolios and their refinancing to meet the markets as they are, uh, what kind of bandwidth and availability do we have to be shaping brand new ideas? And then, of course, and maybe we'll talk about this too, the talent market is still incredibly difficult and uh, and hard to access in this environment, but perhaps for some different reasons than that there's so much company formation and everyone is looking for for you know uh, ex you know excellent uh, executives. Yeah, so so that's that's terrific, and you both brought. Um a lot of uh, really important points to really focus on. So the, the time to IPO obviously is going to get more protracted. Valuations are now uh, obviously are a lot thinner. So it's harder to raise capital and it's harder to raise the amount of capital you need, depending on what the business plan is. So maybe Nina, to you, you mentioned, are you still, are you doing more product companies now or more technology companies or are you agnostic? Because it, it really has to do with sort of what's the ultimate opportunity set. You know, I think on the margin, since I would say slightly on the margin, we've we've preferred to have a little bit of pipeline opportunity. So I wouldn't say that we were platform investors that were developing the platform itself uh, for science's sake, but we'd like to think about if we have a lead product, we don't necessarily want to make an entirely binary bet. That being said, you know, we do really like product stories and every investment that we make tends to be tied to the thesis of the lead program. And I think in this market, in this environment, you know, what's old is new. I feel like this is even true in department stores, you know, with puffy sleeves and puffy pants and leather jackets. We're back in the 80s again. And so what's hot as an investment thesis is drugs and preferably ones with clinical data. 
So I do think we have a more product orientation or more proximal to clinical validation orientation. Uh, and that is because of the timelines. And that is what the exit markets are favoring, whether that's the public investor or strategics. Strategics are looking to fill, you know, loss of exclusivity revenue gaps. The bigger the market, the bigger the revenue, the better. And so we're tending to follow the puck of what strategics are looking for. Canaan has always had a thesis to invest more towards a strategic exit than to IPO. Uh, we believe that mm -hmm. great companies with great teams will always have the IPO opportunity, uh, but that the strategic exit is uh, is the more reliable one. So that that does shape our view and, and probably now more so than, than ever. Yeah, to, to your point about the 80s, uh, my son actually used my Top Gun costume from like 15 years ago. I couldn't believe it. So we're definitely going around circle. Abby, what about you? Products versus platforms? We tend to look at platforms as a means by which to create a pipeline, right? We really do want to be developing companies that, that have a pipeline of assets. That's both from a value creation and risk reduction you know, sort of perspective. So the idea of platforms for platform's sake and you know, sort of doing lots and lots of deals around a single platform and monetizing you know, a platform in that way, that's not how Third Rock has typically used you know, platform technologies, but rather creating what we call product engines, which is really where you're putting together the right technology and biology to you know really create you know efficient drug discovery, efficient um, you know sort of translational strategies, and you know you do need technologies in place. So you could say you have a platform, but the platform's not what drives the value. It's the products that are driving the value, and that's something we're still very, very focused on. The good news is, is that often the platforms are such that you can do some non-dilutive financings with the strategics around a specific platform that maybe is in an area that's non-competitive with the pipeline that you're building. Um, but I think that the days of really big platform deals, they're, they're, they're gone for now. You know, that was a real sell gene, you know, sort of approach. And then it was really Gilead, you know, sort of coming, did a bunch of those. Um, we're not counting on those types of deals anymore. And as a result, really sort of inward focused with how the platform is going to change our ability, you know, to create a really differentiated pipeline. I, I think that, you know, very much what Nina was saying as far as line of sight to the kinds of transactions that um, pharma and big biotech are doing. Um, there's a lot of strategy that goes into how you build these pipelines that allows you to still have ownership of assets such that you're creating value for your company, but then also developing assets that might be better developed in collaboration with a partner or you know, sold, sold to a partner and sort of offsetting the need for equity capital with, with those strategies being built in a little bit more as well. What about when you're thinking about um, capital, there's plenty of capital, but capital is getting more expensive. The time to IPO is going to get protracted, which means you might need to really support your portfolio longer. Are you syndicating more or are you still doing taking down most of the seed yourself and maybe Abby and then Nina? Yeah. So I would say since the um, start of our fifth fund, which was, um, you know, some opened up a few years ago, we started a strategy to syndicate more um, in our early our early programs. We're still doing most of the seed ourselves, but our series A's, we've been very much looking to build strategic syndicates that we think will increase, 
you know, the, the ability to raise in the B also bringing people into the syndicates that bring more than just the dollars, uh, really experience in, in some of the areas where we're build, building the companies, looking more holistically at how we're building the syndicates, but definitely doing more of that. I would say, you know, our early um, fund history, we did take most of the A's actually, not just the C's, but most of the A's. That's changed um, in fund five, which we're just finishing investing in and we're starting to invest our six fund and syndication is a big strategy there. What it's also allowing us to do is invest a little bit later as well. We're not having to put everything up front early in the series A's. We can take things into the companies, you know, for their series B's and even into the C's still maintaining the kind of ownership that we're looking for, but, but also, you know, seeing, you know, opportunities to offset you know, the risk completely being in our hands. Uh, you know, I think it's 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 getting us further with private financings, but we still definitely have to be building the kinds of relationships that will get us to the clinical readouts, right? They, they take a long time and, and we have to build companies and build syndicates so that we're getting to that clinical data because the market is telling us that's what they're going to invest in. And so the early investors that we bring in have to have those deep pockets as well. What about you, Nina? We tend to uh, to syndicate early and, and have done. I think we, we very much like high ownership and we very much like to have influence over capital plans and strategy and, and clinical and regulatory especially. And that does favor going at alone and, and going in uh, early. But because we find that uh, at the next round, typically half or more of a financing, especially in an environment like we're in right now, needs to come from the insiders. And, and although we're a large fund and on the whole, our allocation to healthcare as a diversified fund is not um, is not more than a than a third to forty percent. Uh, we just appreciate the the importance of having a, a syndicate member or two at the beginning. And as Abby said, there's a, a tremendous amount of virtue in having thought partnership uh, uh, in the build and uh, the network for recruiting uh, early on as well. So on the margin, while it's great to have that early influence and that really early high ownership. Uh, we've uh, we've uh, from experience realized uh, that in um, in going long, it's it's great to have a syndicate partner, and, and in tough times, that's especially true. Absolutely. So when when we look at the IPO class of the last few years, and even you know, depending on which cadence of IPOs we're, we're thinking about, which vintage, which year, they they were a little different, but targeted oncology, cell therapy, genetic medicines, neuro, were all fairly hot. What's going to be hot next? Is it inflammation? What technologies? Kind of what, what are you thinking? You know, I'll, I'll start. I think that we are looking a lot towards what the next generation of some of the transformative technologies are, are, are going to be. I think cell and gene therapy is still an incredibly hot area and will continue to be. But we've been looking for really big steps towards the next generation, not incremental. And I think that we will see more of that in the next, you know, sort of three to four years, but it's going to take time. It's definitely going to take time. The academics that are working on the technologies initially, you know, they're just starting to come out with some of the early data that gives us high hope for, for cell and gene therapy 2.0. So that's an area that we're focused I still think neuro is hot and I think neuro will continue to be hot. 
neurodegeneration as well as neuropsych. I think these are areas where there's just been such an explosion in the understanding of the science. There's been changes in an understanding of what could be reasonable biomarkers and some of these indications that gives you an opportunity to take less, a little less risk of your clinical development. And I think that the unmet need is just unbelievable. We hear every day about the you know mental health crisis that you know the world is facing right now and i think being able to take a fresh look at what can be done in the neuropsych area is you know something that we're we're pretty passionate about i also think it's pretty interesting to see a little bit more of biotech playing in um, metabolism and cardiovascular disease really coming forward with you know a new way of looking at things previously undruggable targets that now can be hit because of second generation third generation drug discovery technology so I think that there's there's a lot of things that you know maybe we go back to what's old is new again <laughs> um, that there's a lot of happening that gives us hope that we're going to see these next generation of things that we've worked on before really finally hit hit the mark and make a big difference. I would agree. I would just, you know, double click on immunity, inflammation, and neuro and the intersectionality of the three um, inflammation fibrosis also as we're moving forward and especially improved biomarkers helping us understand and, and, and really trial in that biology. I would also agree that unfortunately, the epidemics of cardiovascular disease and obesity have opened them up now that you can do early reads and with biomarkers and healthy volunteer populations. So that's making it tractable for us as venture investors, because we don't necessarily have to take it all the way into large phase twos or phase threes before you know what you might have. Uh, and regulatory, I think, has helped open that up as well. Uh, next generation, I think the other place, there's no question, RNA is is huge. Uh, and really, you know, next-gen RNA therapeutics and small molecule modulation of RNA and all of the ancillary things that we need to make RNA better vaccines and drugs beyond what was seen in the a pandemic uh, special, uh, you know, black swan event. And then AI and Symbio will continue to be buzzwords, but within all of that buzz and that, you know, cloud and smoke, there is some real uh, stake and some real reality uh, that will uh, will be investable. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, AI, and if you look at the data from Relay, I mean, AI has come on the scene in a, in, a, in a major way. It's one of our big themes, actually, for next year. Inflammation, fibrosis is a huge theme, I and mean, I agree with everything you said. You know, the, the big question with cell therapies now that we're beginning to really see a differentiation between the winners and the not so winners and it's you know the big challenge that i was going to ask you about next is competitive intensity and and therapeutic density in a way that anybody that has a good target there seems four different modalities you know are hitting the same target so as you think about private companies and new company formation where is the pressure points is it you know you mentioned talent capital doesn't seem to be the big issue is it trying to find novel science? Is it trying to find uh, novel uh, targets? Is it in licensing from academic organizations? So sort of what, what are the main, main pressure points? Yeah, so first of all, I wouldn't say that capital is not an issue. <laughs> capital capital continues to be, you know, something that we're, we're very focused on, but I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. I do think that the founders and the academic institutions, the tech transfer offices, 
they have become incredibly business driven. (laughs) They really have a different mindset than they had years ago where somebody wanted to just see their technology, make it, make it to the next steps. And they were willing to be very, you know, collaborative and, uh, you know, somewhat generous with, with bringing both their time and their technology into a company. And now we're seeing a lot more negotiation uh, with the tech transfer offices, a lot more, you know, dollars up front. A, a, a lot, the need to do a whole lot more, you know, deep dives into the IP opportunities. And that's getting competitive too. You see, you know, do you have freedom to operate? Whereas before you were pretty sure you were going to find an asset with good FTO and it's getting harder. Um, so I think that that's one area that is different than it used to be. I do think the war on talent is getting a little bit better. But the interesting thing is that a lot of people are taking themselves out of the of the um, you know sort of operating roles. You know, they're they're really either retiring or stepping back into consulting roles or something. So you know, we are. It is harder to form teams. Right. It, it really is harder to form teams. I think that the area where I'm still pretty confident about is that if you take time, you know, if you're able to bring the right groups together early and you take time and you're able to do experiments during your seed stages, you're able to actually get some data around what the what the clinical hypothesis is um, and you launch a company in a manner that gives you that line of sight to the clinic, you're able to sort of then deal with the capital issues. You're you're able to attract more, you know, sort of sophisticated team members. Mm. There's just a lot of people looking for that line of sight to, to, to the clinic. And that's one of the things that I think we have to continue to challenge ourselves on and understand how you would differentiate, how you would move a target, if you're working on a target that somebody else is working on, how can you actually demonstrate differentiation before you're launching the company so mm-hmm. that you're going out with that thesis and you're able to really talk about that and, you know, sort of encourage people to come in. And even if they've invested in another company that might be of a similar, working on a similar target, they might be interested in doubling down because they see true differentiation in the approach. Yeah, I think I think in a risk off environment, which I think is, you know, really what we're in right now, you know, the challenges are are many because it's so easy to say no. Uh, and so I think for for private companies to to get investors to part with a capital, investors are looking for perfection. So um, even though there is talent and there is capital, you really, really have to stand out from the crowd. So there is, you know, there is that challenge. I, I think the two places that we spend the most time. Uh, one is, as Abby was saying, really, you know, validating new target biology and really showing that it is uh, high veracity, likely to translate to the clinic and would be differentiated from what else is is uh, is being, uh, you know, proffered is is very difficult. And the and the scrutiny, there's always another experiment um, that that you can ask for is one. And then the other piece is trying, especially for early stage science, early preclinical, late preclinical, even early clinical, trying to adjudicate whether it's worth doing in the context of crowded categories where there already are a lot of products and you, and then there are a lot of other products that may be similar stage to you, late discovery, late discovery early translation. It's very difficult to crystal ball how that will all shake out. 
and so it's easy to be to be risk off in that in that setting is is trying to predict the future. And I think we have to try to put on pharma's hat and pharma's commercial hat to say what will be the competitive profile and the target product profile uh, in future state. And you spend a lot of your time doing that your own. Uh, you and your team. And that's, um, that's especially, I think, important now as the, the markets that we're serving are, are getting more competitive. You know, yeah, if I could just add to something that Nina just said, this concept of commercial viability, the target product profiles that you're, you're going for, and really understanding, is this a really important indication? And do we have a path to get into that indication in a differentiated way? We're spending a tremendous amount of time having those conversations, actually, even before the science starts. Mm. And that's a little bit different than, you know, how we used to do things. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, that is something that, you know, has always been done, I think, more in pharma. But I would say with as discerning as these markets are right now, that is something we're doing as well, spending a lot more time, you know, sort of focusing on that. Yeah, because, I mean, if you look at biotech, we all know that th there is the early risk and then there's the later risk, right? The later risk is obviously execution, but increasingly commercial. But as you know, as, as valuations happen and as investment trades happen on the public side, there are the themes and then there's the reality and they're not usually matched up. And I think that's a lot of the challenge. And depending if the market's hot or not, you, you're sort of get you're getting left at the altar at different stages of courting, you know, and... In this market, people are just kind of getting out early, realizing there's not going to be a market at the end. In a hot market, they kind of wait and then they exit before it launches. So it's very hard for a company to kind of know where you are. And I think companies oftentimes are struggling to understand why did things shift so quickly. On our side, we all kind of know what where we are. We know there's 90 minutes in a soccer game and we're in minute 78. You just don't know if they're going to score three goals next or not, so to speak. And I think it makes it very hard on, on your side. So I'm, I'm really happy you're doing that. You know, one of the questions that I was going to ask also, are you seeing a lot of attrition, a lot of people moving from one company to the next, or are people now more likely to stay in their seat because things are not as easy? We're finding people a bit more risk averse to move. Uh, and it's, you know, for two reasons. And we do a lot of company building and recruiting, as does Abby and the and the Third Rock team. And, you know, we, we saw, uh, you know, a, a, an imperative uh, when looking at a new position that there be a certain balance sheet for a seed stage company uh, in order to to move. And and uh, so we see, a, you know, a reluctance for people to move because Series Seed or Series A are, are not uh, routinely now 75 100 uh, 200 million which uh, we saw a lot of in the last uh, last three years so people are concerned about runway to to jump they're concerned about the risk and what's the capital market for early seed stage and venture back companies versus the company that they're with particularly if they're coming from big biotech or or, or pharma interestingly and sort of uh, sweetly some people uh, even though they may be a companies that are more troubled or where they're fully vested they are staying out of a sense of loyalty because they want to manage out and support the teams that they've built and see uh, see things through, even if there's a high probability that their company may not make it or that they may be the last wave of a reduction in force. Uh, but it's it's kind of nice to see that sense of loyalty. So they want to wait and see how how things play 
play out. So uh, we're, you know, certainly there's a, there's downsizing and there's rifts and there's shutdowns more so quite honestly than what is uh, on the front pages of our industry, you know, newspapers and, and, and journals. Um, uh, it's happening quietly and it's, and it's definitely shaking the, the space and, and shaking folks. It's a tough, tough time in, in, uh, in all corners of our sector. It's been really interesting to see, as Nina was saying, these the rifts or the shutdowns, they've just given people pause, right? So I think a year ago, there was a, I don't want to say an arrogance, but a little bit of an arrogance, right? People were really playing the game. They're like, I'm two years vested. I can go someplace else and, you know, diversify my, in my own portfolio by moving from company to company. We're definitely seeing less of that right now. And I think that there is, you know, quite quite honestly, there's a bit more talent out there because of this. And so we're able to fill positions a little bit quicker than I would say we were 18 months ago. Um, the big change, I would say, I, over the last 18 months is positions aren't staying open for a year or longer like they were during the sort of peak of things from, you know, 2020, 21, they, they've definitely come down in the sense that you can find people a little bit quicker. I just wanted to comment on what Nina said about the loyalty of people to the, to these companies as they're going through these transition times. It is remarkable. And I think that it is, it's, it's gratifying. It just gives you such a sense of connection and confidence in the kind of people you've brought into these companies. But I think it's also because they have trust for us and that people do help them find soft landings. And they understand that there is still company creation going on. And so when they're in a big ecosystem like Boston or San Francisco, I think that they're feeling pretty confident that by staying around for an extra three or four months, it's not going to change their ability to, to get that next job. And it might make all the difference in the world and how a company comes down. So yeah. um, it, it's definitely been you know, a touching thing to see for sure. And and I don't want to speak for Abby here, but um, we, we've been in an unprecedented 10-year bull run, you know, the, the biotech cycles used to be more like every four or five years. And so most people that were in it knew that um, that we go through these feast or famine periods. And so much of the recruiting that I've done in my life in the industry is recruiting not just to a company, but recruiting into the Canaan family or the Interwest family or the Bay City Capital family, where part of the dialogue is early stage venture-backed biotech is a really risky business. Mm-hmm. And you're going to work really hard. And if you're a talented and, and a diligent contributor, we we don't know if the complexity of preclinical pharmacology or human physiology is going to turn out such that this is a successful venture because there are so many externalities that we can't control. Yeah. But you're joining a family and we will help you land in another member of that family or this ecosystem that is venture-backed biotech. We went through this long 10-year period where where you, you were re- recruiting to what people thought were just everything as a rocket ship and it'll raise an A and maybe a B and then go public. And so now we're just back to a period of, I think, people joining families and ecosystems uh, of the venture funds and uh, and the venture, you know, uh, collective. Yeah. Um, but it's just that people have, have have forgotten or may never have seen the prior downturns. So I, I want to I maybe... Um... You know, I'll make a quick comment. We've actually been looking internally and thinking, you know, it's what's to, to your point. It's very hard to call the winners early on. And even if you kind of think about the hot companies that are private in each area, 
very rarely was the hottest ones the ones that actually cracked the code. So it's, it's it's actually very very hard to know. So I can imagine being being an um, you know entrepreneur in that environment is not easy. I have both of you, and we definitely need to talk about the role of women in biotech and how that's evolved. You both have um, very different but very symbiotic, and at the end, obviously, fairly confluent kind of backgrounds. Uh, Abby, you're a scientist, and then an executive, and then a VC. Nina, you've been a VC pretty much, you know, most of your life. How is the role of women, or let me actually maybe start with a personal way. How has your career as a woman sort of changed over time? Um, did you ever feel that being a woman made things harder and is that getting easier? And I know it's controversial, so whoever wants to start first. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I have to honestly say probably because of being a scientist and being, you know, starting my career in a scientific environment where really the the sort of um you know initial levels in scientific settings it's about 50 50 right it's not you don't have this you know sort of n of one <laughs> type of uh type of phenomenon but then you see the attrition and that's what's kind of you know that's what's just been kind of weird for me throughout my career is just to understand you know why is it that women say no? Um, because it's not just that they're not given opportunities. It's sometimes that, you know, women are deciding not to take the risk or not to fight the battle to move into the next levels. And when you're moving out of the scientific structure and into more of the business structure, whether that's to be, you know, a general manager in a company or whether it's to move into venture, you are, you know, you're seeing some women who are just not even pushing themselves to get into that area. And that's something that I feel like we have to find a way to encourage, you know, the younger generation of women who are coming in now to be patient, to be resilient, to, to, to know what they want and find the sort of grit, if you will, to, to fight the battle a little bit longer, because then you find yourself in a position where, yeah, you might be an N of one, but your voice is, is equally heard and you can influence at a, at a, you know, sort of equal level. And, and I just think it comes down to people wanting it badly enough to continue to push the limits. It's not easy. And I'm not trying to suggest in a Pollyanna-ish way that all you have to do is want it. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if you're patient and you know, sort of able to withstand a little bit of the ebbs and flows of you know, acceptance in, in, in the roles that you're that you're moving into. I do think that we're going to, you know, crack the ceilings and and see more women in these positions in the in the coming generations. Right? Is it is it a self selection or is there that there is just fewer women and there's been fewer examples of success or role models? I think it's all of those things. There's a lot of studies that have said that people are willing to move into a role where they see people like themselves, whether it's you know whatever the diversity category is. And if you don't see anybody like yourself, you're not going to push yourself in there because you're going to say, well, how, how could I succeed if nobody else has? So that's why I'm saying it's a combination of, of, of all of it you're on. Um, I do think that that's one of our obligations as senior women who have made it into these roles is to be present, to be vocal, to go and sponsor women coming in, not just mentor, but sponsor women coming in. 
because then the next gen after that is going to see even more people in the role. So they have to believe that people haven't been artificially placed in a, you know, sort of quota type of mode and that there's an authenticity to why they're there. Nina, go for it. This is an area of passion for you. It, it, it sure is. So, uh, you know, stop me if my uh, stumping or soapbox uh, becomes overwhelming. For me, it's been really a both and. And, and, you know, in my own career, I've been unbelievably lucky from the first to have been um, in um, firms and organizations with a lot of diversity, with, a, a, you know, a core philosophy of meritocracy, and also with a lot of women and women leaders. You know, at, at Canaan, uh, we're almost 50% female, and right now we have five female general partners which is just extraordinary as a as a peer cohort and camaraderie. So so I feel very very blessed in that regard. But when I think about when I started in uh, life science investing at a hedge fund in New York in 1999 and I think they we're coming up on JP Morgan here around the corner and attending my first JP Morgan uh, and the experience of being a, a young woman in that sea of pinstripe suits at that conference. Uh, and the trajectory of experiencing which one of these is is not like the others, and the arc of that throughout my career, there's an enormous amount of conscious and unconscious gender bias and other bias in the industry. And when I think about how how many times I felt uh, how uh, the men in our industry pattern matched me against other women, and and that pattern matching wasn't as a professional or intellectual peer. Um, giving me a full and equal seat at the table. Uh, I still think we have an awful long way to go before it is an even playing field. Uh, And that has a lot to do with things that are really, really important to being successful in the business. It has to do with the clubs you get inside, uh, you know, access to for deal flow, uh, for the conversations that you get uh, to be fully included in for power brokering, how a transaction gets done, a a hire gets made, a fire gets done, a syndicate gets allocated, things that are really essential to being successful as a venture capitalist uh, or as an executive or a scientist or a researcher in the industry. Um, And some of the things that I get involved with to that end have very much to do with uh, creating the camaraderie among women to provide that inside club and that power brokerages and those conversations among women. Uh, It's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you can't join them, beat them or create your parallel networks, while at the same time, how do we work for inclusivity and and uh, and diversity and, and really uh, co-mingling so that we can have, you know, an industry that really uh, plays plays well, well together. One of them is woven the platform that we created to create a place for women executives and investors to come together and convene in all sorts of different ways, with the premise being this is sisterhood, share deal flow, share ideas, get each other on boards, get each other into roles that advance the, the careers. The other is one of my partners more on the tech side, but it now has a, a healthcare angle as well as all raise specifically for investors. It's a great organization and not for profit that really helps uh, raise up all check writers and hence raise up also women who get back to uh, as investors. Um, and these things are, are important. And I would just say, you know, just as a side note, I, I won't quote the specific statistics because I haven't seen the primary research, but I saw some really disheartening data um, you know, during the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, 
emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion. A lot of it focused on race and ethnicity and not just on gender, but I think it rising tide lifts all boats. And it showed in our industry and venture that we've actually gone backwards in terms of the numbers of uh, uh, diverse uh, entrepreneurs that were backed uh, in terms of either founders or executive teams uh, between um, 2021 and the first half of 2022. And a concern is that, you know, this might be more of a moment rather than a movement and that DEI was maybe something that was a, a perk uh, rather or a marketing initiative rather than something that's a, a true and enduring commitment. And um, I just raise that as something that we should be mindful of and uh, make sure that we keep beating the drum because it's a business imperative. There's so much data now on, on performance statistics for diverse businesses. Uh, making better decisions, having better revenue performance, better governance. Um, so it's not just a moral imperative, but really a business imperative that we we do this. Yeah, so just to double back on what you just said, Nina, the the this is not it can't be a moment, right? This is this has just got to be woven into the fiber of everybody's business. You can't get lethargic. You can't get bored with it. You know, it really just has to be something that we integrate into you know, how we recruit, how we, you know, develop, where we recruit. I mean, there's just so many different aspects of it that we do. We worry a lot about this moment in time type of thing as well. And it just can't be that. It just cannot. And so people are like, you know, it's just how long do you have to stay in your role? I, I'm, I'm prepared to stay in my role into my 90s if I have to, um, just to make sure that, you know, you create the, the environment that makes other people want to want to try it. So I could not agree more that you've got to just make this a part of the business period. And where are we? What Which inning are we in right now? Gosh, the second. <laughs> we're early. I, I think we're not in the first anymore. I, I feel good. I feel like there's been some progress made. Um, but, but, but there are, phenomenon that are very hard to describe that are um, that drive this sense of being excluded right so we're looking for inclusion and belonging and it is very hard for any person you know of you know of color a, a woman you know other diverse characteristics to not feel excluded when you know 75% of the people around the table are listening to each other differently than they're listening to the ends of one that are that are around the table with them. If that's just all still very, very real, it will take a long time for that to change enough for there to be real and durable change. It's just going to take time. So let's um, move next. And that was very useful. Thank you for that. I was hoping you're going to say we're a little bit more advanced, but the reality is we're still early. Uh, the good news is there's a lot to change and a lot of time to change. So hopefully the next time we'll speak, hopefully we'll be in the fourth inning, but we'll <laughs> see. Um, okay. So I want to, this is my favorite part of the podcast as we're getting to the end, a little personal touch and humor. Um, and I was actually going to ask you a different question. So I'm going to change um, the question and kind of shock you. Um, maybe Abby, to you, what was your first job and what did you like or didn't like about it? This is going to sound so strange. My first job was applying linseed oil to shake roofs 
in Phoenix, Arizona to, uh, you know, sort of keep cedar shake roofs healthy and happy. Um, and I, my brother got me the job. And so I stood on roofs and linseed oil shake roofs. <laughs> yeah, that, that is awesome. I did not expect that answer. Yeah, so. That's it's important though. It's like 20 year life, right. Versus about 40 year life or so. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Nina? Well, I don't know what this says about uh, about me, but uh, my first uh, paid job that wasn't under the table uh, babysitting was actually in the legal department of Tycho Grinnell uh, filing compliance documents. So uh, most of the listeners may be too uh, young to know about Tycho and their legal troubles, but uh, we'll leave it there. Yeah, that was uh, that was a landmark. Um for me, I actually grew up working in my dad had a small factory and I was making antennas for the Israeli army. <laughs> my first job back in the days when people actually needed antennas for their tanks. I mean, there were countless things, you know, it was sort of like, what didn't you do to hustle as a kid to, to make a buck, you know, restaurants and babysitting and any kind of odd job to uh, make something to supplement. You know, it's amazing. I mean, my kids are, you know, early sort of mid teenagers and now, Colleges are now putting a huge emphasis on kids actually getting jobs. I mean, it's just kind of the things we all grew up with. That wasn't a part of something you did to get into college. That was just life, which is the best lesson of it all, you know? That's how you paid for college. Yeah. Well, when you, you know, when you tie it back to what we all do for a living here, hiring people who are scrappy, want to roll up their sleeves, are willing to do the time and not necessarily, you know, sort of anticipate a promotion within, you know, a year just because they stayed at their job. Um, I think a lot of that mindset comes from the fact that tons of people just never worked until they graduated from college. And, you know, you did, you just didn't understand that concept of, of, you know, really learning and, you know, gaining confidence so that you could actually do something better and then, you know, demand something more. Right. So. Nina, have you ever skydive or would you ever skydive? I have, and I would do it again. <laughs> wow, you're the first one. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> what about you, Abby? I, I have not um, skydived out of a plane. I did the, you know, sort of inside fake skydiving where they blow a lot of air up so that you can float. <laughs> yeah. And Nina, is it fun to jump off a plane? I mean, I, I would, by the way, if the plane is fully functional, I'm going back to the runway. I'm, I'm not jumping out. Um, fun is not quite the right word. It's really fun when you've safely landed uh, and when all of that adrenaline leaves your body. But there, there's something, uh, you know, there's something sort of spiritual about doing something really terrifying. Absolutely. Great, Nina and Abby. So great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really great. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.